we come to Nehemiah chapter 3 tonight, and with fear and trepidation, I'm going to try to read this. I've read through it, and I've read through it, and some of the Hebrew names are quite unfamiliar names, names that I'm not familiar with, and so uh, bear with me as we, uh, we enunciate them and work through them. Uh, let me give you a couple of things to be taking note of as we work through this. Uh, what I want you to take note of is the number of times, the number of times that Nehemiah talks about making repairs. They were not building the walls from scratch as much as they were as repairing the walls. And I also want you to take note of the diversity of those that are working on the walls and where they're from. And finally, take note of the fact that when we get toward the end of the chapter, he talks about those who are working on the portion of the wall that's right by their house. So with that said, let's stand to honor the reading of the Word of God. Let's remain standing for a word of prayer. This is the Word of God. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel. Next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zachur, the son of Imri, built. Now the sons of Hashaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berkiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baana, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tikoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Jehoiada, the son of Pesiah, and Meshulam, the son of Beshodiah repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Meltaniah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah also made repairs for the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to him, Uzel, the son of Hariah, of the goldsmiths made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Harmupah, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbeniah, made repairs. Machijah, the son of Hiram and Heshub, the son of Pathmoab, repaired another section and the tower of furnaces. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Haloish, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanum and the inhabitants of Zonah repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars and a threshold, cubits of the wall, to the refuse gate. Machajiah of the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth Akram, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. <clears throat> Shalom, the son of Kohaz, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars, and the wall of the pool of Shelah at the king's garden, as far as the steps that descended from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbek. That's not the same Nehemiah as this book. Official of half the district of Beth Zer made repairs as far as a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool in the house of mighty men. 
After him, the Levites carried out repairs under Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashbaniah, the official of half the district of Keli, carried out repairs for the district. After him, their brothers carried out repairs under Bavia, the son of Hinnadad, official of the other half of the district of Keli. Next to him, Ezar, the son of Jeshua, the official of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent of the army at the angle. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabiah, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Elishanab, the high priest. After him, Memorat, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the doorway of of Elishib's house, even as far as the end of his house. After him, the priest, the men of the valley, carried out repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashub carried out repairs in front of their house. After them, Azariah, the son of uh, Messiah, the son of Ananiah, carried out repairs beside his house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah as far as the angle and as far as the corner. Paul all the son of Uzzi, made repairs in front of the angle and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king, which is by the court of the guard after him, Pedadai, the son of Parosh, made repairs. The temple servants living at Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs, each in front of his house. After them, Zadok, the son of Imri, carried out repairs in front of his house. And after him, Shemhiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. And after him, Hananiah, the son of Shilamiah, and Hunan, the sixth son of Zahloth, repaired another section. After him, Meshalam, the son of Bechariah, carried out repairs in front of his own quarters. And after him, Machalijah, one of the goldsmiths, carried out repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants in front of the inspection gate and as far as the upper room of the corner. Between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants carried out repairs. This is the word of God. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word of God. Father in heaven, as we come this evening, help us to see... The beautiful picture of a unified spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I just, I just struggled through that, that text. And, and many of you may be thinking, what in the world is he going to say in a sermon about that? Uh, what do you say about a chapter like Nehemiah chapter 3? How, how do we preach that? How do we preach something like this? Well, let me tell you that if you look throughout history, a number of authors have chosen to do a number of fanciful things with this chapter. One of the favorite things that authors in the past like to do is what was called an allegory. An allegory is where you take um, a, a specific portion of the text and you and you give that a personification. Like some would take uh, maybe the water gate or the fish gate, I believe it is that Spurgeon did. He took the fish gate and made it and made it Christ. It's a picture of Christ. I don't know if you missed it or not, but there's the refuse gate in there. Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. Okay. And they would take that and maybe make that a personification of Satan. Uh, I've heard preachers preach like that, by the way, where they start allegorizing the text. The problem with that is this. The problem with that is, is that's not what the text is about. These were real gates. Real people doing real prepares. Uh, This gate, there's not a gate in here that represents Christ. There's not a gate in here that represents Satan. We're talking about a real city that had real walls that were really breached and had really broken gates that need to be replaced. 
And now, if this is in our Bible, and the Holy Spirit has moved upon men, holy men who didn't write of their own accord, Second Peter one twenty one says, right? And God has given us the plenarily inspired, verbally inspired Word of God so that every word in here means something. That's why I don't skip stuff like this. When I read it in my quiet time, when I, I listen, it's not comfortable to get up here and work through all these Hebrew names with you. I know that I don't get all of them right. The only solace that I have is that none of you are Hebrew Jews that can correct me. Okay? Uh, but why work through it? Because it's the Word of God. And so, as I, and I thought about skipping the chapter. I thought about, let's just go into chapter 4. Because I want to tell you what, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, they, they are good. There's some good stuff coming in Nehemiah. Easy to preach stuff. Kind of stuff that, I mean, you know, a blind pig can find an acorn every once in a while. Kind of stuff that even a bad preacher could preach out of some of the stuff that's coming, okay? But you know what? The more I look through chapter 3, the more I realize that there's some pretty good stuff in chapter 3. I think there's enough here for us to get a message from the Bible and for the Holy Spirit to talk to us tonight about unanimity. In fact, I want to briefly examine three principles for accomplishing God's will from Nehemiah chapter 3. I want to give you three principles for accomplishing God's will. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. The principles just kind of, they're kind of like an umbrella that just cover the whole chapter. I want to point out some things in there that you may have missed or that you might miss if you don't have somebody to point it out to you that I think are pretty interesting to us. Number one, to accomplish God's vision for the church, there has to be a common vision among the people. If we're going to do anything at Memorial Baptist Church that's worthwhile, we have to have a common vision. My greatest frustration is how do I get the vision that I believe that God has laid upon me for this church communicated clearly to the elders, to communicate it clearly to the congregation so that it moves from being my vision to the elders' visions to the church's vision so that we are collectively moving in one direction. Let me tell you something. If that does not happen, we are doomed to break apart. You know what I mean by break apart? I mean break apart if that doesn't happen. If, we're, if I am not able to communicate collectively to the elders, <coughs> excuse me, the elders don't see the vision grasp the vision as their vision as well, and we don't collectively communicate it to you, then eventually what will happen is, is that somebody else will raise up a vision that somebody in the congregation will buy into, and the church will end up in two different directions until eventually we call, it causes it to break apart. It happens all the time. It happens every Sunday in churches all across America because there is no unified vision. If we're going to accomplish the vision that God has for the church, we have to have a common vision among the people. Listen, you can't work together if everyone has their own idea of what you're doing and where you're going. Do you know what kind of a massive task it was to get these refugees? We're not talking about people who lived right down the road from Lowe's and Home Depot and Menards and 84 Lumber. We're talking about refugees that lived in mud huts that if they wanted two-by-fours, if they even had timber that small or four by fours or six by sixes, if they wanted timber to fix something, they took an axe and a saw and went out into the woods and cut it down and stripped the bark from it and sawed it and brought it back. You didn't get your pickup truck, you didn't get your four mule powered pickup truck and ride down to the local 84 lumber and buy your lumber. Do you know what kind of a task it was to get these people unified in getting brick and mortar and straw and mud and everybody collectively working together? Can you imagine one group saying, well, you know, the last wall was all gray and we just thought that gray was really depressing. So we want to add a little pigment in our mortar and we put the wall back together. Somebody else says, but pigment will weaken the mortar. Well, you know, the wall is really just symbolic, isn't it? No, as a matter of fact, the wall is our protection. 
getting them all together on one sheet of music, recognizing that, listen, you can't have more Indians, you can't have, you can't have all chiefs and no Indians, if I can use that analogy. I might get in trouble for using that in our politically correct environment today. You've got to have some leaders. You've got to have a few leaders and a lot of followers. You know that? If we're going to collectively accomplish something for God as a church, then we need to learn from the lesson from Nehemiah chapter 3 that we must work together. We must, we must get God's vision. And I, don't, and I want to be careful in saying my vision. God's vision. We must get God's vision for this church. We must collectively strive to see God's vision for this church. What does God desire to do through Memorial Baptist Church? Where does He point? What do we want to be known for? You know what? You know, the churches get to be known for something. What do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known for the church that's got the best playground? Do you want to be known for the church that's got soccer teams? Do you want to be known for the church that's got, that's got good music? Do you want to be known for a church that makes disciples? What do you want to be known for? Because I want to tell you what. What you want to be known for will be your vision. That's where you will put your money. That's where you put your time and your effort. And that's what you will be known for. You will be known for what you want to be known for. Whether you like it or not. Because you do what you want to do. When people talk to me about other churches in our town, they don't describe them as churches that make disciples. They describe them for what they're known for. I go to such and such church. they got a great praise band, they'll say. Man, they've got a great praise band. I'll say, what's the preaching like? They'll say, well, it's so-so. The last time I checked, the Bible didn't say to rightly divide the praise band. It said to rightly divide the word of truth. Well, I go to such and such church, and you know what? They got the best, they got the best soccer for my kids. Well, my kids play soccer at the Y. I don't need a church to play soccer with. The church, let, let, let's let the church remember what its, its vision and its purpose is, and let's be unified in that. Under this same aspect of accomplishing God's vision for the church, whatever we do, we should always be able to trace it back to the Great Commission command to make disciples. Because next to worship, the, next, the most important thing the church does is make disciples. Whatever we do, we ought to be asking ourselves this. How is what we're doing helping us to make disciples better? Listen, I've got a, I've got a plan. I've got a vision. I'm laying it out with the elders. We're dialoguing. We're talking about how and when to kind of lay some of these things out with the church. I'm excited. We've got an elders meeting this week from Wednesday, I can't wait till that meeting. I'm excited about that meeting because I've got a plan. I've got, I'm already planning out. I've got like a 17-week sermon series planned for the summer. I've got it all envisioned in my head. If I can just get it to Adam so he can help me get it on PowerPoint so I can help get it to you. I can't wait. I can't wait to lay it out there. I think you're going to be excited about it. You know what's most exciting about it? That the entire plan is about how to make better disciples for Jesus Christ. The entire plan. It's not about how to build a building. It's not about what to do with our flowers. It's not about what to do with the buildings or whether to paint the steeple a different color or to build a new cross. You know what? I got Alan for that for a time being anyway until he has to, until somebody has to step up and lead. Let me tell you something, by the way. Alan's being transferred by his work. It's time for somebody else to step up and lead. It's not time for everybody on that team to look around and go, you do it, you do it, you do it. It's time for a man. It's time for a man who's got some backbone to step up and say, you know what? I'll lead. Nobody expects you to be perfect or know everything or how to do everything. What we want, we want a man. We want a man of God who's got the courage to step up and say, God has moved Alan. It's time for me to step into this program and lead. That's what we need for the church. 
To accomplish God's vision for the church, there has to be a common vision among the people. Do you think that they had a common vision? I'll guarantee you they had a common vision. Nehemiah came in there, and I'll guarantee you that it went something like this. Folks, we've got to fix this wall. Well, we don't have time to fix the wall, Nehemiah. We're trying to fix our own houses up. We're trying to plant our gardens, and we're trying to fix our cedared bedrooms, and we're trying to have all of these things as family time. I mean, it's soccer season, Nehemiah. We can't fix the wall. And Nehemiah said, I'm going to tell you something. If we don't fix these walls, the first invading army, no matter how weak and feeble and small, we are doomed. And you know what? Let me tell you something, Mr. Jones. The biggest hole in the wall was by your house. You'll be the first one to die when the army comes. Mr. Jones said, you know what? I think we probably ought to fix them walls. And Mr. Jones looked at Mr. Smith and he said, you know what? I might be the first to die, but Mr. Smith, you're my next door neighbor. And that hole isn't right in front of your house, but you're the direction they'll be coming next. And Mr. Smith said, you know what? I'm with Mr. Jones. I think we ought to fix them walls. And it just goes right on down the line till the people begin to see. You know what? If we don't get a common vision for what we've got to do, it's going to affect me. It's easy to pass off what we don't do because it's going to affect somebody else. But when we see how it affects us, it becomes our problem as well. To accomplish God's vision for the church, there has to be a common vision among the people. Let me tell you secondly, to accomplish God's purpose for the church, we need, a de we need dedicated leaders who can help everyone work toward a common vision. We need leaders who help people work toward a common vision. You know, some people want to be a leader so they can say they're a leader. Other people just lead because they're leaders. Some folks want to be a leader so they can say they're a leader. Other folks just lead because they're leaders. The best leaders are not those with the titles or, the, or, the, or the, all of, the, all of the, at, the things that come to the world that says they're a leader. The best leaders are those that just lead. They just lead. Nehemiah is never mentioned in chapter 3. I pointed out when I read this that that wasn't the same Nehemiah because it's not. Because I wanted to make this sub-point right here about dedicated leadership. Nehemiah is never mentioned in chapter 3, but his fingerprints are everywhere. You know what the point is? Good leaders don't care who get the, who get the, who get the praise. I talked to Toby last week. and Before Toby ever went off to college, I said, Toby, I just want to tell you something. I said, I don't want you to get hurt when you get into a church and you want to get up close to a pastor and you want to try to start doing something and you start doing well and you get cut off. He said, that happens? I said, it'll happen. He said, why does it happen? I said, because a lot of pastors are jealous of sharing the spotlight with anybody else that does a good job. I didn't think anything else about it. I didn't even think anything else about it till last week I called him and he said to me, remember when you told me and he repeated the conversation to me? I said, yeah. And he said, man, I've come to see it's true. You know what? A lot of people are, don't want to share the spotlight. A lot of folks just don't want to share the spotlight. That's not good leadership. We need leaders who don't care who get the credit, just that the work gets done. Good leaders motivate others to do more and better. The people had been in Jerusalem for 90 years, but the wall was not finished until Nehemiah came onto the scene. Do you realize that? They had been released for 90 years, and the wall wasn't done yet. You know what that tells me? It tells me that leadership doesn't just happen. Someone's got to lead. I'm going to tell you right now, Alan's going to be transferred to Belvedere. 
He's going to be in and out on the weekends. We're going to see him. His leadership in the Building and Grounds ministry team is null and void when he makes his transfer. It's impossible for him to lead the ministry team at this church effectively while working in Belvedere five days a week. It's impossible for him to do that. I'm not kicking him off the team. I'm just telling you the cold hard facts. And I'm going to also tell you these cold hard facts. If somebody does not step up and lead that team, it will be, it will be as impotent as a wet paper towel. It will be useless. It isn't just going to happen. I've been talking about how he cleans the church and we need somebody to step up that wants to have a job in the church. Three people have said something to me about it already since yesterday of mentioning that, okay? The reason why I say that is this. Alan leaves and we don't say anything about it. Do you think that somebody's going to show up here and just clean the church? It's just going to happen? Nothing just happens. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Nehemiah was a leader. He comes into the city that had been freed for 90 years. You would have thought that somebody would have said, let's build these walls first. But you know what? They didn't have the leadership. Good leaders know how to task organize. The priests worked on the sheep gate. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Good leaders know how to task organize. If you've got an electrician in the church, you don't put him on trash duty and put the cook on wiring the light bulbs. Good leaders know how to task organize. We tap into somebody's strengths. The priest worked on the sheep gate and others worked on the part of the wall that was closest to their house. Did you see that? Did you see when we got over here to chapter to verse 28, above the horse gate, the priest carried out repairs each in front of his house. Let me tell you something. The horse gate didn't have anything at all to do with the temple. So why were the priests working on the horse gate? What do you think the key phrase was? In front of his house. Can you hear the priest? Listen, Nehemiah, we're, we're part of the priest and we're, we're glad to work on the sheep gate because the sheep come in, that's where we sacrifice. But the horse gate, come on, that's not our responsibility. If I'd have been the leader, I'd have said, that's all right with me. I don't live next there. I don't live by the horse gate either. Where do you live? You live by the horse gate? Well, I'll tell you what, we'll get someone right on it. That's just my sarcasm though. In 1948, there was a Jewish sector of Jerusalem that was under siege by Arabs. One of the generals told one of the men that was there helping to get rid of, get all the men or get all of the women and children and get them to the coast. Get them out of Jerusalem and get them to the coast. And the man that he told the delegate to do that said this, I don't think that's the smartest thing to do. And he said, why not? You tell me why we should not evacuate our women and children. He said, put the women and children in the safest place in the city and send the men to fight. Give them something to fight for. And they turned back the Arabs in 1948. That's pretty smart, wasn't it? You know what he said? He said, if you send the women and children off to where they're safe and the battle gets tough and it really gets tough, then you know what? They might not stay and fight. But I want to tell you what. Let a man know that he's fighting for the very life of his wife and his children. I'm trying not to open my hand up because I've written a note on my hand and I'm a little embarrassed. There, there it is. Leave those women and children in there. And you know what? Those men will fight to the death. And they did. And they won that city back from the Arabs in 1948. Good leaders know how to task organize. Let me tell you something else that we see from Nehemiah and his leadership team in chapter 3. Good leaders are not afraid to delegate authority and responsibility. They're not afraid to delegate. I know pastors that are just worn out because they think they've got to be at everything. You know what? I'm not, I don't come to everything. 
But if I don't come to your ministry, I seldom make it in here on Thursday nights to Noreen's special ministries. I greatly value what Noreen does. I think that what Noreen does is saintly, and I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I think it's saintly what she does down there with her special ministries on Thursday nights. But I don't make it in here every Thursday night. But I want to tell you something. I don't feel guilty for not making it in here every Thursday night. Because you know what? I go to a lot of meetings. I'm out a lot. I'm out of town a lot, and I'm out late a lot. So I don't feel like I need to make it in here every Thursday night. You know why? Because Noreen has got it under control. But me not making it in here, the best that I can tell, she's never been offended by me not making it in here. She's glad when I come, and I come in, and I, and I encourage her, and I encourage her ministry, and then I move on. You know why? Because she's doing a great job. I don't come to all of the ministry team meetings. You know why? Because if I have to do all of those ministry teams, then let's just get rid of all of them and give them all to me and my desk and I'll just do all of everything. I don't want to do it all. I'll tell you this. This church will only be as effective as you will be in taking up your role of leadership. And I will delegate and give you all of the authority and responsibility that you need. I, Jim is now leading our stewardship and finance team. And I call him periodically and I say, Hey, Jim, listen, man, it's, uh, how about trying this? And he'll say, Can I do that? Can I do that? Man, you're leading this thing. Of course you can do it. He says, I didn't know I could do it. Do it. He, all right, I got it. I'm running with it. Delegate. Let other people lead. That's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah gets in here and he says, you take this gate and you take this gate and you take this gate. That's what good leadership does. It delegates. Good leaders show proper recognition to those who join in the labor also. You know how I get that from? All of these names. He kept record. I can see him walking around like this now. Can't you see him walking around? Hey, what are you? what's your name? Hollingsworth. Hollingsworth. What? Look at, look at old Hollingsworth doing. Sidwell. Look what Sidwell's doing. I can see him doing that. And you know what he did? You know what he did? You know what he did to show his, great, his gratefulness? Their name's in the book of the Bible, isn't it? Their name lived forever, hadn't it? You know, whenever we have some great event that takes place here in the church, I always write a note the following Monday. Every time we put one of these banners up, I write a note to every member on this banner team the following Monday, thanking them for their dedication and work and labor. When you have a birthday, I write you a note every week. Your anniversary, I write you a note every week. When Jared began playing the trumpet, I wrote him a note and said, Jared, I just want you to know that I really appreciate what you're doing playing the trumpet. You know how many times somebody has come to me and said to me, I've been in church for 10 or 15 or 20 years and never got a note of thank you from the pastor? I'm not breaking my hand on my own back when I say that. I'm saying this to you. You Sunday school teachers, why don't you write notes of thanks to those that do things in your class? Elders, deacons, you know what? Neighbors, friends, loved ones, members in the church, write notes. It doesn't take anything to sit down and just write a few sentences that says, I appreciate what you did. God used you to bless me in my life by what you did this week. Sign your name, put your stamp on it, and put it in the mail. And you know what? I guarantee you this. They will break their neck to help you the second time because you showed some appreciation for what they did. That's what Nehemiah did. He showed some appreciation for what they did. Good leaders are not easily discouraged either. Did you see it in verse 5? Look at verse 5. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoiites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. It's just a little note put in there. Whoever these guys are that didn't do the work, it's in there for us to read 2,500 years later. But you know what? It didn't discourage Nehemiah. Let me tell you something. If I quit the ministry, every time somebody tried to discourage me, I would have not been in the ministry for long at all. You can't quit just because somebody discourages you. I'm amazed at how quickly people will leave their own church. 
I'm amazed that, that one week somebody is talking about how great the church is and how much they're learning and how much they're growing. The next week, one thing doesn't go their way or a few things don't go their way and that's it. I'm out of here. When I want to say to people like that, I want to say, you know what? If you're not married, I'll warn every woman that I ever meet about marrying you. Because the moment the marriage gets tough, you're going to be like that too. and You're going to be out of here. And if you are married, boy, I'm going to pray for your marriage. Because I'll tell you what, there ain't much of a chance of anything lasting with you. Marriage, work, or anything. Hang in there. Don't quit because you get discouraged or somebody tries to discourage you. I'm going to tell you something. If you're ever going to do anything of value, you're going to make somebody mad. You know what I have? The, the more I understand about politics, the greater appreciation I have for all politicians. I know that's a, that's a mouthful, isn't it? That's a mouthful, isn't it? But I want to tell you something. You name me one politician that doesn't have half the people that doesn't like him. You know what? That's you got to almost be a sadomasochist to go into politics. Because at best, half the people like you. And then whenever your own party gets mad at you, three quarters of them doesn't like you. You know what? You can't live life based upon who's going to like you or who's going to agree with you. You need to find out what God's will is for you and for your life, and you need to just live it and let the chips fall where they may with those that disagree. You should listen to those that disagree. You ought to listen and see if they're a word of wisdom that God has given to you. But you know what? If you see that they're, what they're saying to you is not from the Lord and it's not the wisdom from God's word, then, re, then don't worry about it. Go on. My pastor used to say this. He used to say there's a little bit of truth in all criticism. You ought to listen to it. You ought to find the truth in the criticism. You ought to make corrections in your life and wash the rest off and go on. He said to me, when you go in the ministry, Charlie, let me tell you what you ought to do. You ought to poke one of your eyes out and bust one of your eardrums and get you some calluses on your back. Because if you're going to make it the ministry, you've got to have one blind eye, one deaf ear, and real thick skin. And you know what? It's true. But it isn't just the ministry, is it? Ask those guys that have gone up there to Kokomo to work. You know what they'll tell you? They'll tell you that they're mistreated every day at work. You know, I say to them, listen, you didn't go up there by deception. You didn't go up there by trickery. It was God's providence that you're there. You are an employee of Chrysler. You deserve the job that you've got because you've put your time in. And if they're going to complain and cry and they're going to treat you bad, you trust in the Lord and be a good employee and let the chips fall where they may. You don't let your joy be robbed from you by a bunch of disgruntled other employees. You didn't choose to make that happen. You didn't go out and take somebody else's job. You see, one thick, one blind eye, one deaf ear, and real thick skin, it isn't just in the ministry. I'll tell you the truth. Let's just be honest. Is there anybody here who doesn't have to have a deaf eye or a deaf ear, a blind eye, and thick skin at some point in their job? A nurse, a banker, a construction worker, a factory worker? Is there anybody? There isn't anybody. That's good advice for all of us. Let's not be so discouraged by the naysayers. Let me show you one more point here. To accomplish God's purpose, we need willing workers to do their part. We need willing workers to do their part. If we're going to be effective as a church, I need you. I need you. I, I'm, I'm surprised at the lack of turnout we get sometimes for Sunday nights. I'm even more surprised for Wednesday nights. I just want to tell you something. You know what? Listen, I'm putting out some pretty good stuff on Wednesday nights. Not because of me, but because of good materials. We're doing some pretty good stuff on Wednesday nights. We're having some dialogue. We're learning some pretty good stuff. Come on back. You know what? You won't get as easily discouraged if you're more grounded in God and His Word. We need people to do the work. There isn't anything more discouraging than to have a big work day. 
and have four people show up as their Alan. Discouraging. But you know what? If you have a big workday plan and 30 show up, you just walk around and everybody's just everybody everybody's saying it. Man, look who all's here. Look who showed up. Man, look look at everybody that's here. Everybody says it. It's like all of a sudden it's like this. I'm part of this team. Yeah, me too. That's the way it works, guys. Vacation Bible school, you know what? You know what? There isn't any reason that we shouldn't have uh, members of Memorial Baptist Church like bees on honey at Vacation Bible School. It doesn't matter whether you're teaching or not. Just show up and walk into some classroom and say, can I help you? Walk around and pat kids on the head and say, Jesus loves you and so do I. Maybe a little nicer than that, but you know what I mean. Get you a can, get you a pocket full of bubble gum or, or lifesavers and walk around there and tell them kids that you love them and you're glad to see them. What you see in Nehemiah chapter 3 is you see a covenant community that's come together to do a big task and everybody's doing their part except a few of the naysayers. You know what you don't... Don't worry about them naysayers. Don't worry about them. You know what I think is interesting as well? Somebody's got to do the dirty job. I couldn't help but think about Chuck when I saw this. Look at verse 14. Malchahijah, the son of Rechahab, the official of the district of Beth Hakaram, repaired the refuse gate. Just got one name in there. Hey, I need some volunteers to go to go fix the porta potties. And everybody does this. Toilets broke, it's all backed up. We need somebody to go fix it. Nobody raises their hand. But this guy. You know who this guy was? Look at verse 31. What's it say that his trade was? A goldsmith. Isn't that amazing? You know what he didn't say? Someone come to him and say, Hey, would you fix the refuse gate? Oh! These hands are for touching gold. Not dung. You know what he said? He said, Where's the gate that needs to be fixed? Because you know what? I'm a craftsman with these hands. And I don't know much about gates because I'm a goldsmith. But I bet you I can figure it out. That's leadership, isn't it? You know what that is? That's costly ownership. I'll tell you what. If we could get a church that thought like this, can you think of a task that we couldn't accomplish? Can you think of a task that we couldn't accomplish if we had teenagers that walked through the parking lot on the way to church and saw a pop can or a paper wrapper and said, you know what, this is my church and that's trash at God's house where I am a member and they just pick it up. Can you imagine what kind of a church we would have if we just put it in the bulletin? We're going to have a work day and you know what we're going to do? We're going to fix toilets and clean out bugs out of the light, out of the light uh, fixtures. And we just had 30 or 40 folks just show up with ladders and blue jeans and, and goggles and masks. They accomplished a great deal of work here in less than a year. They didn't have Lowe's. They didn't have Home Depot. They made their own bricks. They cut their own timber. And they fixed gate after gate after gate after gate. Repair after repair after repair after repair. And they could not have done it by themselves. They joined together. Let me tell you something. When you join together, it means that you just got to look over somebody else's idiosyncrasies. There is none of us perfect. 
There isn't none of us always the sweetest to be around. There isn't any of us that have got it all together. We're all sinners saved by the grace of Christ, called to be in His body to do His mission on this earth. I'm going to close by telling you a story about a missionary to the Philippines. There was a missionary that went to the Philippines. He was trying to figure out a way to be able to reach the natives of the land. He lived by them. They lived in huts. He set up a set of croquet in his front yard. You know what croquet is, right? you got the mallets and the balls and the little wire things and you hit the, hit the balls through them. He set it up in his yard and began playing with it by himself a little bit. And some of the natives came over after a while. They asked the missionary what he was doing and he explained to them that he was playing croquet. They asked if they said they wanted to play. And he said, sure. So he gives them all the rules and tells them how to play. He gives three or four of the men some mallet, a mallet and a ball, and they all begin to play. As the game progressed, one of the men was in the position of knocking his opponent's ball off the court. You know, that's how you play. The missionary came up to the native and he said, this is how you hit this ball and you'll knock your opponent's ball off the court and it'll put you in a position to go through the wire. The native standing there in nothing but his loincloth looked at him and all puzzled. And he said, Well, why would I want to knock his ball off the court? And the missionary said, So you'll win. The short native dressed missionary with nothing but his bewilderment on his face chose to not do that. In their society, people survive by hunting and working together, not by competing against one another. Instead, what he did was went around his opponent's ball, and one cricket or one cricket or one 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 gate after the other got his balls through. And when he was done, he didn't say that he won. He went around and he helped his friends and he coached them on how to hit the ball so they could get it through the gates as well. One at a time, they all got their balls through the gates. And when the last one got his ball through the gates, the missionary says, they all started shouting with their hands in the air, We won! We won! Man! What a picture it would be if we could be like that. If we wouldn't be worried about who gets to do what job or who gets the, who gets the, the, the recognition for what job. What a church we would be if we would just be the kind of people that just says this, Here am I, send me. God, what do you need done in the church? Where's the pastor and the elders leading us? Lord, let me listen for the vision that they're casting. Let me be a good worker where you've put me. Let me come and be a part of this team. And let's, let's, let's get a hold of a vision of where God is leading us. Let's be unified. Let's measure the vision that's cast by this. How will this equip us to be better disciple makers? You know, God has a job for every one of us to do. Peter writes this, As each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. As each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another. I believe we can learn a lot from Nehemiah chapter 3. It's worth struggling through all those names just to see that beautiful picture of teamwork, of God's covenant community coming together, putting aside their differences, not caring about who is skilled in what, and just getting the job done. Let's pray that God will equip us to work like that together. Let's pray.
And then let's appropriately sing the first and last stanza of hymn number 608. <laughs> 